You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 55. Hey everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Mark Golston. Mark is a psychiatrist, executive coach, and consultant to major organizations. He's the author or co-author of several books, including the international best-selling books, Get Out of Your Own Way, Just Listen, Real Influence, Talking to Crazy. His latest book is called Trauma to Triumph, a roadmap for leading through disruption and thriving on the other side. He has contributed to Harvard Business Review, Biz Journals, Business Insider, Huffington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Day, and appears widely in media, including CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fortune, and Forbes. He also appears frequently as a subject area expert on television, radio, and podcasts. He hosts his own podcast called My Wake Up Call, where he interviews influencers about their wake up calls. Welcome to the show. Mark, appreciate you being here. That's a great introduction. I don't know who this, uh, you, I have the imposter syndrome, John. What are we going to do? <laughs> well, how long has this been a problem? Let's go ahead and break it down for you. What's well, actually interesting because uh, about this imposter syndrome, because in some of the circles I run in, I've, I've been trying to figure out what's, what is this imposter syndrome about? And something that I've noticed is that people who actually are about providing service, like healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, they don't suffer as much from the imposter syndrome as people who are trying to drive revenue. And I've been trying to sort that out. So a lot of the nurses, the social workers, especially that I meet, and the doctors who aren't in it to just uh, become rich, I'm not against that. Uh, uh, But the people who live to serve, they don't seem to have the imposter syndrome. They can be disappointed in themselves that they could have done a better job. And, And so I've been drilling down, what is this imposter syndrome about? So my latest drill has hit this idea that I think people who suffer from the imposter syndrome, they either don't want the world to discover that they don't know what they're talking about, or they're not as competent as they're portraying themselves. But I think a more sinister part of the imposter syndrome is they don't want the world to find out that they don't care about the world. They don't really care about their people. And despite the words they say, uh, it's always about uh, how can I increase my power, increase my wealth. And so it's still sort of a work in progress, but I've just been hearing in a number of the circles uh, I'm with uh, in, especially entrepreneurial circles, you know, I'm hearing it thrown around the same way as people used to say, oh, I've got ADD or I'm on the spectrum, I'm, I'm what? So I'm starting to hear this creep in. So I just wanted to share that with you, see where that lands. I think it's very, very interesting. So if if it's the idea that I don't care about other people, because truly you said service, people who are in, in the front lines and in the helping professions, they're serving others. If the entrepreneurs had that same perspective, theoretically, that could be the antidote for the imposter syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Something that I'm also noticing, there's a difference between founder entrepreneurs or or founder CEOs and professional CEOs. And and often the founders who have put years and years into their business really care about their products, the value it provides, as opposed to an exit strategy. 
And I've run into a number of founders who put in all that time and then they get investors, maybe private equity, put some money into their into them because they think they could get more of an ROI if they change the management, including sometimes the uh, the the founder with the uh, who originated the intellectual property is sometimes kept on, but then they get rid of the other ones because they're underperforming, and and it's fascinating because I I've Maybe we'll spend a whole episode on this, but I run into some founders in which they didn't realize how much their identity was in building their business, growing it, to the detriment even of their families. I mean, that company was their baby, and then they grew it. And then what happens is when that identity is ripped away, uh, and and when a private equity or uh, another investment firm, uh, investment bank drills in. It's all about ROI. And what happens is they can often feel a, a level of guilt because they're going to do well. But a lot of the people who have been in that company for 10 or 15 years may not participate in the upside. In fact, some of them may be let go. So there's often this angst about people who devoted so much time may not be part of the future of that company. So there's often a feeling of some guilt about that. And then also when they nurtured their company, they nurtured their brand and they see it being diluted in the service of ROI, you know, it's like, what have they done to my baby? And, but the greatest angst is they feel I don't have the right to complain about it because I got to cash out. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon. A lot of variables coming together and imagine changing moment to moment. Is it best in that regard for the founder to stay on or is it better for them to go and reforge perhaps a new identity? Well, I think they'll try to stay on. But what will happen is as, you know, uh, as investment firms want more professional management that can, uh, can increase the, the, the value of the company, you know, often uh, that founder is not, is not capable of thinking like a business person. They grew it to a certain level, but outsiders saw we could grow at 5x. And so they will often be kept on. Uh, rarely will they stay on as chairman of whatever board is found. They'll remain on the board. Sometimes they'll go away and be able to just work on their passion, which was creating whatever the product or service was that they originally invented that turned into their company. But frequently, more frequently, they'll leave and try and find something else. And uh, and some of them can get through that rough period where they lose their footing and and rebuild something else and have more perspective uh, the next time. Uh, but some of them, you know, are not serial entrepreneurs. They, they don't live to grow something and then flip it and, and get cash out and then grow the next one. So it, it runs the gamut of people who uh, who are able to make the transition to others who have more trouble. So, Mark, is that a form of 
trauma in and of itself for someone who's gone through and built this up from, you know, the idea to, to creation, they give birth to the company and they have a whole bunch of team. And then all of a sudden their, their separation from the family they've had with them for many, many years. And the baby itself has become a different entity altogether. It can be trauma. So you know, in our book, uh, in Diana Handel and my new book, uh, Trauma, to triumph a roadmap for leading through disruption and thriving on the other side. Uh, you know, we make a distinction between stress and trauma. One of the differences between the two is when you're stressed, you can still focus on your goals. You know, it's a little, it's it's not that easy, but if you're a leader, you know, you're fairly tough and you can make it through <clears throat> stress and stay focused and make the decisions you need to. When it crosses over into trauma, one of the goals becomes relieving the pain that is too much from the trauma. So stress, you can still focus on the goal. When you become traumatized, the goal becomes just the survival as opposed to growing the company and then having it thrive. So what we hope the readers will get from trauma to triumph is that how to get through a traumatic situation such as COVID, but then use that as a springboard to become better than you've ever been. And that's why it says thriving on the other side. And there are certain things that we talk about the Institute. Uh, so we, we talk about uh, that you want to create a, a, a ready to go team that has various processes in, in place uh, that you learn by going through this first trauma and where, where should a, another crisis happen, instead of people running around, people will know exactly the chain of command, uh, uh, who reports to who, who's responsible for what. And so you want to, you, you want to take that lesson uh, away from a current trauma that you're going through. And also, as we were just talking about, someone who sells their company and finds that traumatic, well, if they get into another company, you know, what are the lessons that they should take away from it? You know, geez, they thought they would feel free and excited. And yet the ones we, had, we referred to feel kind of out of sorts. So, uh, so it's really important to learn from these traumas. And I think the people at the companies and the leaders that learn from them uh, are going to be in a much better position than the ones who just just survive and then collapse. Something I did want to also mention, I'm not sure how this impacts leadership, but they may be observing it. What we're discovering is that as the pandemic seems to be, uh, we're getting past it, that there's a certain amount of the population that instead of feeling excited are listless, they're unproductive. And it can be confusing. Well, you it's safer now. You can go out. You can party. You can see people face to face. And the way we've explained it is, if you can remember going through final exams in high school or in college, you know, you could make it through that four or five day period. And then after you finished, you didn't go out and celebrate. You collapsed. And so let's imagine that what we've all been through during the pandemic is one 
long-term final exam period that's lasted over a year. And how we've explained it is that uh, what allows you to make it through final exams for a short term, or maybe when you see the playoffs with the NBA or other sports teams, is you your adrenaline pumps you up because of the excitement. Uh, and in the case of the pandemic, the danger, what happens is we're running on adrenaline to deal with the stress. But as the danger goes away, the adrenaline goes away. And so people collapse because as they feel safer, all that feel listless, they feel unproductive. And something I want to point out to your listeners and viewers is when you feel that collapse, whether you're a leader or uh, an employee, one of the most common things you will feel is just wanting to withdraw. You know, you'll go to work and you often don't want to be around people because you're exhausted. It's the opposite of what you need to do. What you need to do is be around people. What you need to do if you're a leader is keep the conversations going and not give in to the temptation to withdraw. Is that making any sense to you? I think it is making sense. Um, I love the analogy of finals. Uh, it is in essence kind of making it happen based on the adrenaline that we have. And then once that adrenaline is gone, the, the fear is gone. In this case with the pandemic, there can be a collapse. So the, the urgency here is to continue. Is it like developing the muscles and, and redeveloping the strength of being in a, in a social economy? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's as if, uh, it's as if certain things have atrophied. So it's a great uh, parallel that you're using about uh, our social muscle uh, has atrophied and now you have to build it up. I'll tell you something that leaders can do now that will dramatically help their cultures, maybe even transform their cultures. After 9-11, I was called into organizations and companies uh, to, to do something with their people. I was called in by some financial institutions. You know, can you meet with our high net worth clients because they're just out of sorts? And one of the programs, and I'll send you a link uh, to this because it was written up in a uh, Leadership Essentials magazine. Uh, what we would do is we would meet with people and we'd say, share a time in your life, not in the present, a time in your life that you never thought you'd get through, but you did. A time in your life where life was different afterwards, but life wasn't over. And it taught you how strong you were, how adaptive you were, and pick a time when someone uh, helped you. And so when we would do these programs, if you can picture in your mind's eye, and sometimes people would be assembled at tables, seven people at a table, and they would start sharing things from their life in the past that met all those criteria, people would be crying within about 30 to 40 seconds because they'd be reliving them, but they'd also be reliving having gone through them and then reliving the gratitude of the person uh, towards the person who helped them. And so something we've come up with, if you want to take advantage of the pandemic and use it to boost your culture, if you're a leader, 
is something we call the VCG trifecta. Uh, and what VCG stands for is vulnerability, courage, and gratitude. Vulnerability, courage, and gratitude. And why it's helpful to bring up past events that show the vulnerability is that will cause everyone to look at you like you have courage, whereas as you're telling the story, you don't think of yourself as being courageous. You just thought of yourself as surviving it and getting through it. And But you got through it and passed it. And you did become stronger than you thought you were, more adaptive. And then when there is a person that you're grateful to, uh, part of the homework is find that person or their next of kin. And while it's fresh in your mind, thank them. And it really changes things. What we've also noticed is that if people are going through a current trauma, you know, let's say you're uh, you, you're wanting your company to feel supported, and so you invite people to share kind of what they're going through. You know, one of the problems is if someone uh, in your organization brings up a truly horrendous trauma, such as, um, well, you know, this past weekend you know, my son died by suicide. I mean, when you invite people to open up and they open up a present trauma that they're going through, it can sort of twist the whole meeting that you're in because you want to attend to that. And everyone's going to be watching. Are you going to, how are you going to leave that person when they just, you know, filleted themselves open? So what we recommend is, is you say, look, if people are having a particularly rough time currently, we have these, uh, these places you can go to, these people you can speak to, because we don't want to cheat you out of the undivided attention that the trauma you're currently going through deserves. So, well, someone's having a trauma in the background there, but... Uh, but can you? See, this is an important distinction because a lot of times leaders will think, okay, so so we're we're trying to uh, allow people to show their vulnerability. We're going to bond around it, but there are times when people will share something that's overly vulnerable, and then the group doesn't know what to do with it. So you have to pre-frame the rules to set the container for what's appropriate at that conversation and also point them to resources if it's something that's beyond the scope of what the intention of the exercise is. Is that in line? Right, right, right. Um, uh, but can you see that in your mind's eye? Because every now and then when you say, well, let's do a check-in, let's see how people are doing. We're all having a rough time. And again, you know, you still want people to be able to talk about what they're going through now, but uh, but I've seen it happen where someone is going through something really, really horrendous. Uh, now, you can designate another time. You could say we, we might want to make available uh, for people who want to share a particularly rough time. Like uh, one of my good friends who I'm partnering with, he lives in Delhi, and we're cre we're creating a program for uh, for mental wellness that the whole that all of India is going to use in the, in the next few months. I'll, I'll keep you posted on that. But he was saying in Delhi, he said, almost every family has had a relative who has died from COVID. That's a big population. 
you know so but but you want to make available you know times places and resources if people do want to open up about those things but that other exercise when i did it with groups after 9-11 i've heard from some of the people who are still at that company or left that company uh, they said they occasionally run into people who went through the exercise after 9-11 and they don't remember me they remember me remember when the psychiatrist from california came in <laughs> so they don't remember me by name or anything but they remember the exercise of people opening up and really uh bonding with each other over that shared vulnerability that taught them how strong they were in going through that process obviously you're much better equipped than most managers, leaders out there. So it was okay for you to go through that process. But for the average leader, that's probably a little bit much to handle it after a 9-11 type of event. Is that like to that degree? Is that fair to say? Uh, I'd say that's very fair to say because, you know, that's why they're bringing me in. But I think if you frame the process and if you go through it, because when I did it with groups of CEOs, I would... uh, and, and they would get it, I'd say, you can go back to your company and you can redo this exercise with them. But if you frame it with regard to past traumas that they've lived through, it takes it, takes it away from being overwhelming from the current trauma. Makes sense. With the one risk of being like so deep that it's beyond the scope. And that's why you go into past traumas, not current traumas. Is there ever, have you found the experience where people are just waiting in the waters, not really going to the deep end and just being superficial? Oh yeah. You, you, you say, look, uh, I remember I, I was called into a big, big bank and on wall street and, uh, and, and uh, and I was meeting with the executive team because they knew that they had a rough patch coming their way. And when I said, you know, I want people to share a difficult time that they uh, uh, that they went through that helped them realize uh, how strong they were, uh, you, you know, most of them were able to do it. But there was one person who looked like Grumpy from the Seven Dwarfs. His arms were crossed. And I thought he's uh, uh, he's just not liking this at all, and so I, I allowed anyone who didn't want to participate the option. But by the time everyone else participated, uh, I thought he was going to poo-poo the whole thing, and he said, um, "Worst worst time I've gone through, uh, you know that I've got through. Uh, well, I don't know that I've got through because it it's happening now." You know, my uh, our, our son, our son is a manipulative drug addict, and we kicked him out on the street. And we don't know where he is or if, what's happening to him. And uh, uh, and and because I had felt that there was a really supportive group by the time we got to him, I said, "Can you share the impact that this is having on your wife?" And. And he just really lost it. I mean, he got emotional and he said, you know, she's she's just out of her mind. But then they were able to sort of pull together. So again, uh, I'll send you the link to the article. And 
uh, certainly customize it to your comfort level, your expertise, but it, but it made so much sense uh, because, because what happens is when people show vulnerability uh, and uh, or share a story with vulnerability and you see the, and you attribute to them the courage that they got through it, plus the lessons learned and the wisdom, plus the gratitude to someone else who helped them, what happens is everyone feels honored to be in the group. When we used to do the program and we'd have people do this at tables, uh, after they did it, you could feel the room flex. And, and I, I would ask every group, raise your hand if you feel that you're, uh, that you're in a group of special people. You know, and some of these are left brain analytic types and they all raise their hand. And I said, what happened is you're no more special than you were an hour ago. But what happened is you all shared a special moment, you know, that you got through. And you looked at everyone else as being incredibly courageous when for them, it was the same as it was for you. They were just getting through it the best they could. And then when you also heard people just being grateful as opposed to being you know, arrogant and full of themselves, you just had a special experience. So that was the thing they, they've remembered it forever. Is that comparison to others where they could view the same behavior in others and say that's courage, but not feel the same way? Is that also relating to some of the things that happen with imposter syndrome? That, uh, that's an interesting angle. I, I, think, um, I think when people, to, to be honest, I'd be shooting from the hip and I'd rather not, but, uh, but I want to give it some thought because, because again, what we talked about is that people who feel this imposter syndrome, it's, it's they're afraid of being found out as either not knowing what they're talking about or not caring about uh, other people that they're promoting themselves as caring about. That's fair. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. And, and, Obviously, the angle was more lack of compassion for self versus respecting others, and which is more of a self-esteem, perhaps, perspective. You had mentioned previously around the survival mechanism, and we've kind of danced around, you know, fight or flight with trauma that occurs. Is survival mechanism equivalent to fight or flight? Are they exactly the same, or is there overlap but not equality? I think there's overlap. So, uh, because because what happens and and I'll give you just enough neuroscience for some of your neuroscience listeners to take me to task. But, but what happens is uh, when we are stressed out or traumatized, uh, there's a huge outpouring of cortisol. And cortisol is a stress hormone that basically signals the rest of our body, get ready uh, to deal with the stress. And the higher the cortisol the more likelihood it's going to trigger something in our brains, a part of our brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is like a point guard, you know, in the NBA. It, it, and what happens is when the stress and the cortisol are high enough, the amygdala does something that's called an amygdala hijack, which causes our blood to preferentially flow into our lower survival brain. So there's either fight, flight, or freeze something we talked about in 
trauma to triumph, and my co-author is much more experienced at this, uh, uh, she's, she's observed a fourth F during trauma, at least for healthcare workers and organizations, and she calls it friends, fight, flight, or freeze, and friends, meaning uh, some, of the, some of what helps you to get through it is that you're not gonna let your, your, uh, your peer down. You may not know how you're gonna go back and, and survive the next shift, but you can't let other people down. When you talk to people in the military, one of the reasons that they, they, they put themselves uh, and keep going back into traumatic situations is they're just so bonded to their peers that they can't let them down. Oh, that so, seems so, yeah. insightful, incredible. So people are willing to, for the benefit of that social contract, uh, go back into situations that might be even ongoing trauma, despite the fight, flight, or freeze response because of the, the pull of the friends. Right. And, and also something we talked about in Why Cope When You Can Heal is that, uh, you know, when, you, when you're going through the trauma and you don't think you can get through it, the the high cortisol, the danger, the amygdala. Uh, there's also an outpouring of a, of uh, of adrenaline, because adrenaline is not just about excitement; it's about danger. And adrenaline insulates you from pain. You can play a quarter of an NBA final game on a fractured leg, because the ad adrenaline insulates you from the physical pain. And as we talked about before, adrenaline can insulate you from some of the intrusive thoughts and feelings that if you allowed them in would paralyze you. But then when the adrenaline goes away, you know, those thoughts and feelings at having confronted things that were horrific start to threaten to come back and take you over and take you down. I understand that there might be a, a lot of the cortisol, the stress hormone happening when there's, there's bullying. And I understand that you're also, you have a conference coming up about never uh, be bullied again. And that's, that's the topic that you're lecturing about. What happens inside the mind? Is that a fight, flight, freeze, or friend situation when someone's being bullied as well? Well, I, I think you know, that is exactly going on. And I'll, I'll just give you a little teaser because I have a feeling this is going to be a, uh, a frequently requested uh, presentation. And what the presentation is about, and it will be to a conference uh, of women in technology. It's actually the organization is called WITI, Women in Technology International. And, uh, and what I've learned about bullies is, uh, now the, the, it's a whole different thing. If, if there's physical bullying going on, you need to call in something. But if it's, if it's verbal bullying and emotional bullying, what I'm going to teach them in the presentation is that uh, many of these bullies bully you. And we don't have to talk politics, but you can think of what I might be imagining. But many people will bully you because they want to get you so agitated that you can't notice that they're incompetent at what they're doing. They're covering up for something. They're covering up for not knowing what they're doing or covering up for they're really not caring about the company. So the more they can keep you on the defensive, the more they can keep your cortisol, your adrenaline all jacked up, and the more that you're in your survival brain, the less you can think and consider, uh, geez, is what they're saying even making sense? Do they even know what they're talking about? Uh, 
And so uh, to give you just a little bit of, so what do we do, Dr. Mark? I mean, you've, you've teased us with the situation that many of us live in every day. So the advice is mainly identify those people uh, in your life. And these can be at work. These can be bosses, employees, or coworkers, and family members. Identify the bullies in your life. The physical ones, you have to take other action to protect yourself. Uh, but if they're verbal bullies, identify them and never expect them not to bully you. So when you're in a conversation with them, hold a little bit of yourself back because as soon as the conversation goes in a direction where they want you to do something you don't want to do, or they want to not do something you'd like them to do, that's when the bullying behavior comes out. And what they're going to do is try to agitate you and provoke you. Because if they can provoke you, you're going to have this internal cortisol to amygdala hijack to freeze, uh, fight, flight, or freeze. And then hold a little bit of yourself back. And then when they do that, Learn to look them straight in the eye and pause for a couple seconds and just be very calm. And they're going to be looking for you to be provoked and out of commission. And there's various things you can say to them at that point. You could say, would you mind saying that to me in, in a different voice? Because the way you said it kind of got me all uh, discombobulated. Or, uh, or you might say something like, uh, do you really believe what you just said? Or you might say, huh? And what happens is uh, when bullies see that they couldn't provoke you into being off balance, they often don't have a backup plan because many of these bullies are trying to bully you into reactivity because they're trying to, trying to keep you from catching them in something. So that makes sense. So know who they are ahead of time. Uh, hold a bit of yourself back. That doesn't mean be aloof, but but be ready for them to hit you with that that uh, provocative action. Pause, and instead of being a deer in the headlights uh, and freezing, pause. Lean in, look them straight in the eye, and say, "Want to run that by me again?" Uh, you know, kind of the way you you said it before got me all you know, kind of out of sorts. I love the strategies. Thank you. What is the outcome? So I know that you said the outcome of a bully, perhaps in the workplace, is to distract you from seeing what else is going on in that situation. What do they want to see happen? They want to see you get riled up. Is that that's their win that they learned the strategy perhaps early on in life? Well, they probably observed it as a child. You know, it's amazing what we've learned as watching uh, our parents when we were young. I've just become a grandparent of three in the last two and a half years, and I get to see them every day. And, and I'm not a great believer in cliches, but it changes your life to become a grandparent. And, and, I, and I'm much more present with my grandchildren than I was with my regular children because I was too busy earning a living. But I, I can see my grandchildren that they really tune in to their parents, my two daughters, and their and their dads, and I can see they're really learning. And uh, and I can imagine that as they grow up, if they see one parent dominating another parent, uh, sorry about that uh, siren there. 
Uh, but if they see one parent dominating uh, another parent, they can either take the side of the one who's dominated or they can become the dominator and say this, I guess this is the way you get your way, but they're learning all these ways of dealing with life. And, uh, and but, but bullying others is usually because you want to force your particular uh, point of view on them or keep them from discovering something that you might be hiding. So to me, I think most bullies are hiding something. Even, even the competent ones, they're hiding something because if they were really smart and they could just lay out both a compelling and convincing case, they would just make their case and it would sell itself. That's a really good point. Thank you for uh, sharing that as well. And, and I understand, I know you're a, a prolific writer and you have nine books to your credit and counting. And of course, seminars, webinars, trainings throughout the world. Right now, I believe you have a, a program that it that has not been something you've done before, but this is also a new thing that you're launching or, or you've already launched a program? No, it's launched. So if you go to Himalaya Learning or Himalaya.com, and I keep misspelling it, but it's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A.com forward slash defeat. It'll take you to the audio course and it's called Defeating Self-Defeat. And there are 12 audio episodes that you can hear. And uh, Himalaya is pleased with them. I'm pleased with them. And what they are is really counterintuitive ways of dealing with certain self-defeating behaviors. So, uh, so I'll give you a teaser. So the earliest episode is on procrastinating. And a lot of people procrastinate about something. So each of the episodes has a different way of looking at things that is counterintuitive, meaning I never would have thought of it that way, but it's intuitively correct where you say, gee, that actually might work. So the one on procrastination is what I talk about is that we often procrastinate not because we're disorganized, undisciplined, or lazy, but because we're lonely. People don't think of that. And what does that mean? It means that when we were young and we had to do things that we didn't want to do because people were telling us to do it and we couldn't get away with not doing it. We've made a promise to ourselves unconsciously, when I get older and I don't want to do something, I'm not going to do it. But, and what happens is uh, when you're faced with doing something and you're not doing it, you get the, the cortisol response, the stress. And so to avoid it, you pull away. But where does the loneliness come in? Well, if you can reach out to other people all these 12 step programs, one of the reasons they work is not the 12 steps. It's the fellowship. It's people caring enough about you that when you're having trouble, you reach out to your sponsor and they say, let's go to a meeting. And what happens is the, care, the mutual caring triggers something called oxytocin, triggers bonding and the bonding lowers the cortisol. And what I talk about in the procrastination episode and I don't know if I want to try this with you, John, but I could. I, I was on a radio show with this delightful radio host. And I said, what is something you're procrastinating about? And she said, uh, everybody tells me I should write a book. And I said, well, how long have you been procrastinating? I think she said about a year and a half. 
And I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm gonna, I said, if you were to start working on the book, when would be the best time to start writing each day? And she said, probably seven in the morning. And she was East Coast time. I was Pacific time. I said, here's what we're going to do for a month. Every day, Monday through Friday, I'll take a break. I'm going to call you at 7 a.m. your time, 4 a.m. my time. Probably not going to get back to sleep, but I'm going to call you. And uh, and I believe her name was Natalie. And you're not going to complain because I just got up at 4 in the morning to call you. I'm going to say, Natalie, get in front of your computer. Get there, get there. No, 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 no excuses. It's 4 a.m. for me. Get there, get there. And then when you're in front of your computer, I'm going to say, what's the question I should ask you that when I ask you, you'll start writing? And we're going to do that every morning. And she told her audience, you know, that crazy psychiatrist from, from California, he's calling me every day. And so we did that for a month. And then she got, uh, you know, into it. And then six months later, she calls me and she says, what's your address? I want to send you the book. Wow. Fantastic. Love that story. Can you see how that would work? And, and because it was the, the mutual caring and the oxytocin, you know, calmed her down and she was able to do it. It connects back to the idea of the friends, uh, fight, flight, freeze, or friends, and that social agreement that we have. And we're willing to do more for others quite often than we are for ourselves. So I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Dr. Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure again to have you here back on Key Conversations for Leaders. What's the best way for our listeners and viewers to get in touch with you and, and find out more about the program and the books and all the great things that you have going on? Well, let me ask you. So is, is, is this a, is there a video of this or is it just a... Yeah, we'll do video, video and audio. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm going to show you a neat trick and I have a video person, so hold on. Oh, geez, this is worth it. So look at this. Can you awesome. see that? Awesome, yes, love it. Okay, so if you see the video, and I can, I can tune you into my uh, video uh, uh, technologist. So if you're listening to this, you won't see it, but there's a, there's a, a, a QR code. Uh, and if you scan it with your phone, it will take you to my LinkedIn. Or you can go to my LinkedIn, you know, without scanning it, but it'll take you directly. Or, uh, or you can go to my website and <laughs> just to do overkill, there, there's a QR code that'll take you to my website. I, I overdid it. I've never done a twofer like this, John, but there they are. I think we can handle it. We got, we got leaders. They're very competent. They can, they can scan both of them. That's fantastic. Oh, I will, so if you, there you go. Uh, for the non-QR folk, I'll make sure that I put the links in the show notes. They have access to them as well. And again, Dr. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me on again, John. And thank you all for listening and watching. And until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. And if you'd like to connect with me and other like-minded leaders, I invite you to join our Facebook group called Develop, Empower, and Lead, where I deliver free live training every week. If you go to developempowerlead.com, it will redirect you right there. Hope to see you there soon.